welcome to the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk with experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with Canadian doctors, dietitians, athletes, climate experts, and more to break down the evidence behind a whole foods plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps you can take in your effort to shift toward a healthier lifestyle. Today's episode is with Joanne MacArthur, a Canadian photojournalist, animal rights activist, and author. She's known for the We Animals Project, a photography project documenting human relationships with animals. Through the We Animals Archive, she provides photographs and other media for those working to help animals. Her first book, We Animals, was published in 2013. Her second, Captive, was published in 2017. She has a third book called Hidden, which features a foreword by Joaquin Phoenix. That was published in 2020. MacArthur has won several awards for her work, including the 2018 Wildlife Photographer of the Year People's Choice Award for a photograph of a lowland gorilla rescued from poachers. And more recently, three of her photos made the top 10 in the Earth Project's COP26 photography competition. Joanne has been working as a photojournalist for decades and sometimes navigates extremely dangerous environments, from brush fires in Australia to factory farm operations in Turkey and Italy. She does this to shine a light on the plight of a wide range of animals, as well as to showcase the downstream effects our treatment of animals has on our environment. Joanne, thank you so much for your time and for joining the Plant-Based Canada podcast, fresh off of your big win at the UN Climate Conference photo competition. We really appreciate your time and coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Now, of course, I want to get into the, the big competition, the UN Climate Competition, um, and then all of your other work as well. But before we do, I'd really love to just get to know you a little better. So if you could maybe tell me about yourself and about your background and what got you interested in photography in the first place. Mm. Well, I was always interested in photographs. Uh, the records of history. And uh, I was quite obsessed with conflict photographers and photojournalists, those with the Magnum Photo Agency, for example. And um, I started down that path, even though I studied English and geography at Ottawa U, I was, I was quite obsessed with photography. But um, it, it took me a little while to find my footing with the animal photojournalism. It um, it sort of became apparent to me as I became more sensitized to animal cruelties, animal welfare, animal abuse, that these stories are virtually unknown to us, uh, especially for the bulk of us who eat meat. We don't think much about where the animals come from, how they're raised, how they're transported and how they're killed. And the more I started thinking about this, the more I realized, wow, well, we need their stories to be seen and told and shared and in the media. These stories aren't in the media. And so I latched onto this and I started doing investigative work with NGOs. I started traveling the world ravenously. Uh, for a long time there, I was on the road for six to eight months a year doing investigations into all manners of how we use and abuse animals. I started 20 years ago and here we are, time has flown and then the project has really evolved. Was there something that really sparked your interest in using uh, your camera as a tool in, in this activism? Was there some event or something that's, that, that sparked that for you? Well, there were a few things. Uh, I once was photographing a chained up monkey, a bunch of tourists and I were standing around this chained monkey and we were all taking the same picture. 
but they were taking a picture because they thought it was funny and cute, something memorable from their trip. Whereas I was taking a photo thinking, well, maybe I can do something with this. Maybe I can show someone, uh, help the monkey somehow. And I realized, you know, or rather, you know, that was one of those moments where I realized, aha, this is how I want to use the camera, not just to record random things, but to record instances that I feel, um, that I feel need to change. There was something else before I was doing the animal photography. Uh, I was photographing humanitarian stories and there is a place in Northern India called the Tibetan children's village. And I spent a fair bit of time there documenting the kids and that satisfied a lot of things for me. You know, my curiosity, my desire to, to travel and to see the world and to help out in some ways. But what really clicked for me was when I had the idea to use those images to fundraise for the Tibetan Children's Village. So I came back to Toronto, had an exhibit of that work, and all of the funds raised went to the Tibetan Children's Village. And that was another moment for me where I was like, okay, this is really how I want to use the camera in my life. When you you mentioned the, the monkey that you were um, taking pictures of uh, at the zoo, that was actually, so one of your projects, I think it's captive that was one that really resonated with me. I think people that don't think about this on the outside looking in, they see a picture, they see kids, family members smiling, looking at whatever animal is behind the cage, but you look at the animal and the animals essentially behind bars and they are unaware, the people they're looking at it, that this animal is suffering. I thought that was maybe some of, for me, what resonated most with some of your photography. So that's that, that whole thing. We'll, we'll make sure that we, that I link that project because I really hope people look at it. You're also the founder of uh, Unbound Project. Can you tell me more about this project and how you got involved with it? Oh, I love Unbound. It's about women on the front lines of animal advocacy worldwide. And I started this project, I think about seven years ago, when I was traveling all the time and seeing that everywhere I went, it was women showing up and staying and doing the hard work. Of course, men do it as well, but I wondered, you know, am I just biased because I'm a woman or a feminist? Is that why I'm seeing this? Is it really true? And so I did some research and it turns out that in fact, in at least North America and Europe where these studies were done, that uh, animal advocacy is led predominantly by women, 60 to 80% by women. And yet we see men quite often in roles of leadership at NGOs, and well, frankly, everywhere, of course. And so I wanted to create a project that honored women in animal advocacy. It's been really fun. It's a really nice balance for me personally and for We Animals Media in terms of showing the bad and the good, uh, showing not just the problems, but showing the solutions. It's very much a solutionary project. And to date, we featured, I think, over 60 women around the world doing all sorts of work. So we have featured lawmakers, we have featured journalists and artists, scientists, veterinarians, sanctuary founders, uh, people doing the difficult frontline work of rescue as well. It's a real pleasure. <laughs> and uh, we have our next story is on Miyoko Shinner. So she's the founder of Miyoko's Creamery. And she just started making that cheese not too long ago. And her her products have just exploded. When I was there uh, just a few weeks ago, photographing her at her sanctuary and at the cheese plant, 
they had just been given like another 50 million in capital for their, for their incredible company. Wow. Yeah. So it's really fun to photograph, you know, people all around the world doing really innovative and pioneering and hard work on behalf of animals. Yeah. I can vouch for Miyoko's cheese. That's, that's, that's a good product there. That is, that's a, that's a, that's an awesome, the Unbound project really, really interesting. And people don't really think about it. I mean, you, you, you mentioned the majority of the people on the front line of animal advocacy and animal rights movements, they, they are women. And that's what the statistics show. It's, it's largely in like the animal rights, the vegan movement, it's mostly led by women. The majority of the people involved in it are women. Um, so it's good that you're bringing that to light there. I want to get more of a sense, I guess, uh, logistically kind of how you operate when you're out there on the field and you're taking photos. And some of these, some of these environments you can find yourself in can be dangerous. We already know here in the States and a lot of places over in Europe, just to get into places like factory farms, it's, it's can be dangerous because they like things like ag ag laws, make it illegal for journalists to go in and take pictures inside. And oftentimes there's an under, there's a, a group of people that go in there illegally to take these photos, but they're putting themselves at risk to get to, to showcase what's actually happening to these animals. But you're, you're going to even more dangerous places like that. You're going to places where wildfires have ripped through. I want to know, I guess, what it's like to be out there on the field when it's that dangerous and then um, how you operate with your team. You said earlier that you, you know, you work together with NGOs and stuff like that. Uh, what it's like on the field and what kind of situations you, how you navigate some of these dangerous situations. It's funny you mentioned the fires because that's definitely dangerous, but I often feel that I'm in the most danger when I'm at a factory farm or at a breeding facility of some kind where I could get caught and, and beaten up or put in jail. Uh, many of my investigator friends have gone through that kind of thing. I've had uh, investigator friends who were beaten up with baseball bats, broken femur, uh, all, sorts of, all sorts of horrible things have happened to them. So we are really putting ourselves at risk when we do this work. And I don't like sneaking around. I would much prefer to have full access to places of animal use, but these places are generally closed to journalists. Um, and it's now illegal in more and more states and provinces to be a whistleblower, to photograph even from public property. And that's because these industries have a lot of money and they have lobbyists and they do have things to hide. Uh, that's my job is to go in and to show how animals live and die at our hands. And it's, I was going to say something cliche, like it's not pretty, but that is a gross understatement. It's absolutely horrific. Um, I was reviewing some footage today and I'm still really reeling from it. And that wasn't even my footage. It was someone else's footage. Um, someone having fun by uh, punching a turkey in the face. Yeah, it's, you know, so back to your question, the dangers aren't just physical for me and for investigators and journalists doing this work, the, the danger is psychological as well. Like I was just reviewing that footage today and I'm feeling really upset. Uh, I really sort of, I just want to crawl out of my own skin and I want to do something immediately. And I, I, you know, struggle with PTSD and uh, a sense of powerlessness sometimes uh, knowing that I can't end the suffering and can't end the violence immediately. So that's in part why 
people who do this work, it, it's quite a revolving door. People come in and they do it for a few years and they leave because it's grueling and it's depressing. But I am able to do it in the long term largely because I can separate myself from the suffering. I mean, today I'm struggling a little bit, but generally I can live alongside the suffering instead of in the suffering. Like I know that animals are hurting every moment of every day globally, but that doesn't mean I have to do it right along with them. I would just get really tired and burnt out and I would leave as many people do. So people often ask me about how I cope, not so much that, that they can hear how I cope, but so that they can reflect on, on tools that they can use for coping. And uh, so one of the things that I, I do tell people is that, you know, animals need all of us advocating for them as long as we possibly can. And so it is important to separate ourselves from the day-to-day -day suffering and enjoy our short, beautiful little lives. We're here for just a blip of time. And uh, so I know personally that I want to live a really happy life. So I do. And uh, I do my best every single day to, to advocate for animals. And sometimes that's a little bit and sometimes that's a lot. Either way, it, it has to be okay. <laughs> And you, and you've been doing this for, like you said, for decades that you've been doing this job where you've been going into these places and seeing animals suffer like this for years and years. I'm happy to hear that, that, that you've been able to manage it, but I, I, I can't imagine the kind of stress that that can put on a person after so many years. I know a lot of people can become, I guess, desensitized to if something is, you know, their, their job or they're doing something repetitively, but you must be, I guess, a very empathetic person, um, you know, so many years down the road and it's still, you review some footage and it's, it's still horrific. It doesn't matter how many times you see something like that. Yeah. I, I don't close myself down to it emotionally. Uh, I stay open and empathetic. And I think that's in part why I can take strong images and why I continue to go back because I have open channels of feeling these things, but also healthy walls when I don't need to be feeling these things. So people often ask me, or rather they assume that the camera is a barrier, an emotional barrier between me and the animal when I'm photographing or me and the millions of animals that I'm photographing in a given week or month, but it's not. I do my best to be empathetic and imagine what it's like to be them. And so there I am immersed in the smells and the sounds and the stress and seeing their injuries and making eye contact. And, and um, I want to convey that, you know, I need to convey a glimpse of what that experience must be like for them so that people can be empathetic as well and make kinder choices. Yeah, of course. There's, there's a sense of, of duty there for you. They don't have the voices. So you give them one, I suppose, with your lens. I, I, I do um, I do want to mention this, this use of language. And uh, we often call them voiceless, but of course it's that we don't have common language. <laughs> exactly. They're definitely not yeah. voiceless. Yeah. Well, you've so, been there, so you've seen it. Uh, most of us, you know, most of and the people listening to have not been in the situations you've been in, but I, that language again is voiceless because like you just said, they, they don't speak our language, but it's, they're certainly not they're They're in pain. Mm, and we don't speak their language. And I think that's one of the reasons that we, we impose inflict rather so much suffering on them. It's because we can 
close our ears to the sounds that they're making and we can close our eyes to their their bodily expressions and just say, well, they are unlike us. So we can't know for sure that that scream is a scream of pain or that recoiling is because of anything we're doing to them. But, you know, ethology is proving all of this wrong. Anthropomorphism used to be a dirty word. Like we couldn't ever attribute um, expressions that we might make to them as well. Uh, Sounds, expressions, and all of this, but, but we know a lot more now. We have proof that how they're behaving are expressions of many complex emotions. And uh, so we can't fall back on that, you know, fish don't feel pain or, uh, you know, all of these nonsensical things that we've said for so long. Exactly. And there's also the whole other side of, of this conversation, specifically talking about the factory farms in which the animals are seen as a product and not an animal, a living creature. It's just a means to an end for some of these, these operations. So also um, we should mention too, in the midst of a pandemic, the other thing too, that you're risking your life and the animals are suffering from too, is, is the, is infectious diseases that can spring from these environments. So not only are you putting yourself uh, in these dangerous situations, like you said, you can actually, there can be physical harm that come to you, but there's also the chance that in these situations, in these environments, infectious diseases are, are jumping from animals to humans. That's what happened with the pandemic that we're in now. So, I mean, there's, there's a multitude of, of things. I want to, um, I want to turn to something a little lighter now uh, and go into some of your bigger wins and some of your accomplishments as a photographer. Let's talk about the big thing that you just won. There was the COP26 United Nations Climate Conference. They did a photo competition and you won three of those prizes. So can you tell me about some of the photos? I've seen two of them, but I don't think I've seen the third one. So if you could describe those, I guess, for listeners at home. And then I guess what you meant to portray with these photos that you took. Okay. A little background here is that, uh, as you say, at COP26, there was an exhibit and a photo competition. So this is run by the Earth Project. And what they do is public engagement and community building around sustainability and animals and, and climate change and earth issues. And so they launched a, a public exhibit where people could vote on a number of images that they wanted to see presented at COP26. And uh, they had a top 10. And of the top 10 images uh, with votes coming in worldwide, three of them were mine. So I'm very, very proud of that, but very, very happy. More than being proud that they were my images, I'm happy that people voted for the most difficult images, which are the images I submitted of factory farming, animals in transport, and animals in the climate crisis. And so, you know, that sends a strong message to the global leaders and to the public and to media that people are ready to look at these painful images and wanting to discuss them and wanting change. So I was really, really happy about about that. And you're asking about what the images are. The first image is of a kangaroo in a burned plantation. So I photographed that obviously in Australia Uh, during the fires. And above her were koalas in the trees who were dehydrated and burned. So I was there photographing that rescue mission 
there were the bodies of kangaroos around in the plantation. And here she was, the survivor. Uh, an estimated 3 billion animals were either killed or displaced by the fires. And here she was uh, in her burned home and yet a symbol of hope. And she has her Joey in her pouch and she's looking at me. And if she's looking at me, that means she's looking out at anyone looking at the picture. And it really resonates. And I think she's becoming quite emblematic of animals in the climate crisis because that, uh, that image is very visible around the world these days and very grateful for that. Uh, the other images are of uh, animals in transport. And the other image is of a piglet next to her mother who's in a gestation crate in a factory farm. These images were shot at the Bulgarian-Turkish border and in Italy. Uh, the pig was photographed in the Parma region, which is the region known for produ producing prosciutto, which is a popular kind of, of ham. And um, yeah, like I said, I'm just really glad that those images made it into such a public forum. Uh, we need to see, and these images were really hard to publish even just a few years ago, but things are changing quickly. That's one of the beauties of animal photojournalism, which is a new genre of photography that we coined, that we Animals Media coined. We see a lot of wildlife photography, conservation photography, photojournalism, humanitarian work, but all of these things are exclusive of all animals. And so it seemed to me that it was becoming inevitable that we needed a name for a kind of photography that included everyone, the animals in breeding facilities and labs and the captive animals, uh, the factory farmed animals. And so we named animal photojournalism. And it's a really exciting time because we're seeing people now call themselves animal photojournalists um, and being interviewed widely and globally about what that is. So it is being embraced. And again, it's great to see that evolution of photography. It's great to see the evolution of, or rather it's great to see the door opening to animal photojournalism in media and in the public conscience. Yeah, I was going to say, you said just a few years ago, it would, would have been hard to publish some of these photos. And again, you've been doing this for years and years. So it must have been quite a feeling to send those photos out and then on, and then see them picked on a world stage like that. That, the, like you said, it really does showcase people changing their minds and, and an evolution towards something different. It, I guess, is, a, is almost ironic unfortunately, uh, that it was the cop summit, because we know um, there was a lot of, not a lot of progress that was done on cop and they barely mentioned animal agriculture, unfortunately. And all these things, as you know, they tie together. You've got um, animal agriculture, uh, which is, you know, causing deforestation and ocean acidification. And then down the road, all of that kind of leads to climate change itself, which is, which is sad, but it is good to see that people are now more aware and that during the summit in which they barely talked about animal agriculture, those were the three photos that, that people chose. So I'm happy to hear that. We talked about in the beginning about some of the dangerous um, situations you find yourself in for these photos that you won for, were there any moments of danger for these? Absolutely. All three of them, in fact, you know, in Australia, we drove thousands of kilometers just to get a little bit of access. There were um, blockades at every turn. There were fires alongside us. There were, you know, 
you know, smoldering ground, you have to be very careful. You have to get fire training when, if you're going to be allowed out anywhere in the fire zones. So there's that inherent danger. When I was at the Turkish Bulgarian border photographing the trucks, I was there for a week and I was climbing trucks, uh, climbing up to the, the third level, sometimes to the very top to photograph who's inside uh, the kind of conditions that they're in up there, uh, show the heat that they're suffering from. That's dangerous in, in that, you know, when you're sort of free climbing these, these trucks, also with your camera gear and you're holding on with one hand and shooting with the other hand. Uh, but I mean, I do it a lot. I'm, I'm like fairly trained in this stuff. So, but you know, one must be careful. One must also be careful of, of moving trucks and angry people. And then lastly, at the Italian factory farm, there's always the danger of, of getting caught and getting into legal troubles and physical troubles, as we discussed earlier. But I work very securely. I don't just willy-nilly go in these places alone. I have a security team. We have people outside watching for cars and people. We have walkie-talkies with little earbuds in. So we're always in communication about what's going on on the outside. And we take great care, especially, you know, I... I'm not going to be useful to animals if I get caught. <laughs> and so I'm very, very careful if anything is amiss, I leave. So I tend to go into these places, spend as long as I can, and leave with absolutely no trace. I'd like to ask you about a really moving photo that you have that you took uh, in the past. Back in 2018, you won the Wildlife Photographer of the Year People's Choice Award for a photograph of a lowland gorilla that was rescued from poachers. Can you tell me about the story behind this? and how you managed to capture that moment in this, that critical moment in this animal's life? Mm. Well, the answer to that is that you just have to show up, you know, when you're a photographer, <laughs> you have to do the legwork, you have to go to places and then you have to stay. And then you have to keep shooting when you're tired and you have to say yes to everything within reason, of course, or even, you know, beyond reason a little bit. And so I was at the sanctuary for six weeks. It's called Ape Action Africa. It's a beautiful uh, place in Cameroon where they rescue animals from the pet trades and the bushmeat trades. And Pick and the gorilla had been rescued from the bushmeat trade. And she was in the arms of her caretaker, Apollinaire. She was sedated at the time. Uh, rules, are a bit, <laughs> rules are a bit lax in certain places. Like, you know, in Canada, you would never really get into a car with a gorilla. <laughs> But, you know, there we were in Cameroon and uh, they had to move her from the vet clinic to the new sanctuary space that they were moving her into. And so they just picked her up and like, you know, she was asleep in Apollinaire's arms and I was in the front seat, turned back into the back seat, photographing this rather unique and extraordinary moment, this sleeping gorilla in this man's arms. And so that's where the award-winning image was taken. And she did wake up from the sedation, which was really dangerous for me at the time because she'd never been in a car. She could have really freaked out and injured all of us, but because she was sleepy and because she was in the arms of her caretaker. And in that image, you can see them smiling at each other. Uh, she stayed calm and she went back to sleep. Thank goodness. And it was funny during that shoot because um, what was happening was it, it was the move of a group of juvenile gorillas from a small enclosure to a much larger uh, 200 acre sanctuary enclosure, which they had been building for a long time. And it was a really big event for the sanctuary. 
And I thought the best images would be of that final release. Like here they are, they all get to run out into the sanctuary. I'm going to get the best images there because that's the most impactful moment. But I didn't get any images there because it was just poor conditions, poor shooting conditions. And I got like absolutely nothing. And yet, because I shot the whole thing over the course of a few days and immersed myself in everything, it turns out that the best image from that shoot was of the man holding the gorilla during transport. Yeah. I was going to say, it it just sounds like you need to put in the time and be there because you never know when that moment's going to strike. Keep in mind that I am not a photographer when I ask this question, but that was going to be one of my, my questions just now was, you know, you said that it was bad conditions for shooting. Do you shoot on film? Cause I know you have to really have the right conditions to, to, to set everything correctly versus something like digital where it's programmed to do it itself. Is that, do you, do you, I guess, do you have like both or do you prefer to work on one type or? Okay. Good question. Um, thanks for asking me to clarify that. So I do shoot digital, but what I meant by poor conditions was not necessarily like the temperature or the clouds or the weather, it's that there were too many cages and wires between me and the action. I see. The animals went out into the sanctuary and then they ran into the forest. And so here I was on like this side of the sanctuary shooting through bars and like they moved quickly. And so the conditions for getting good images were really poor because the action happened really quickly. And I was stand, no matter where I moved, I couldn't get a good shooting angle. I see. Um, Before I let you go, I just wanted to, if there's any, I wanted to ask you if there's anybody who's listening at home, who's inspired by your photography and, and your advocacy and what you do, what's your advice to them to get out there and get involved? I guess one really good bit of advice is to, like you just said, to be there to experience it. But if you could maybe speak to that a little bit, if somebody is, if this podcast, if this interview has inspired somebody to um, maybe pick up a camera and get involved. Well, the exciting thing is that when it comes to helping animals, you need not be an international photojournalist. You need not be someone with some big, important job of any kind. Uh, Helping animals starts with our daily choices. And we can choose to not buy that shrink-wrapped animal in the supermarket. We can try Miyoko's cheese. We can, you know, support all of the amazing vegan foods that are out there now and enjoy them and try them out. Uh, it used to be scary. It's not anymore. <laughs> I'm kidding. It was never scary, but uh, yeah, like we can just make daily choices. We can go to a sanctuary if we want to see animals instead of going to a zoo. Uh, we can vote for politicians who have great animal welfare uh, standards on their agenda. There's things that we can do every day. Uh, I do encourage people to pick up the camera, though, if they're inspired to tell animal stories. And in fact, we have so many requests for mentorship with that, that we actually created a masterclass. So my NGO, We Animals Media, has a masterclass, and that's available uh, on the website. You can check it out there. And, uh, you know, if people want to get educated about what we do and animal photojournalism, uh, we have books. We have our website, which is a great resource, but we also have our books, including our new one. It's called Hidden Animals in the Anthropocene. And so all of those are available on the website. And I, and I second uh, Miyoko's cheese. Um, (laughs) It's been a pleasure talking to you today and discussing some of the important work that you do as a photojournalist, but also as an advocate. And if 
people aren't exposed to the ways that we treat animals in our environment, then it's much harder for them to care. So your work is really important. So again, thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll make sure that we link everything uh, so people can find you in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining the plant-based podcast. Thanks for helping me get the word out. It's really important that, you know, people like you help me do that so we can change the world together. So thanks so much. This podcast featured royalty-free music from bensound.com. A very special thanks to our guests for speaking with us and sharing their insights. And of course, thank you for listening. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate the public and health professionals on the evidence-based benefits of plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website, www.plantbasedcanada.org, and stay up to date by following us on Instagram and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org and our Plant-Based Canada YouTube channel. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts.